This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome to another Money and Markets podcast. I'm Dan Coatesworth, and as earnings season gets into full swing, I'm joined by Danny Hewson to dig into the numbers to discuss what those results can tell you about the outlook for 2023. Hello, Dan. It has been a pretty volatile, I'm getting really used to saying that word, a pretty volatile start to the new year. But the FTSE 100 hit a four-year high on Monday before investors were unsettled by comments from central bankers suggesting that the fight to tame inflation isn't over yet. Now, some of the things that we'll be talking about on today's podcast include Sainsbury's, JD Sports, Barrett's and Direct Line. There's also some job cuts with Amazon announcing some big warehouses to close. And Goldman Sachs is also rumoured, as we're recording this, to be announcing some quite severe job cuts and probably the biggest cutting drive since the financial crisis. We're also going to canter through the changes of the help available to businesses with their energy bills come April. And we can't ignore, nobody can if you're into investing, the latest missive from fund manager extraordinaire Terry Smith. He's dumping PayPal and Starbucks and he's still got a bone to pick with Unilever. Now, commercial property valuations are falling across the country but are real estate investors worried? Now, we talked to Richard Shepherd Cross from Custodian Property Income REIT. Now, he's going to be on the show to talk about where he sees value in the market and how many of the trust properties are actually able to keep raising rents. Okay, so not surprisingly, we've got a fair bit to get through. And it's kind of tough to know where to start, really. But I think the direct line's probably as good a place as any because it is fair to say markets were pretty shocked by the news that the insurer was scrapping its dividend after a flood of claims in 2022, Dan. I know. like Investors over the years have absolutely loved this stock because it pays out really generous dividends. I'm talking every single year, people are just going to say, look, just look at the cash it's, it's, it's sort of generating. This isn't really a massive growth company, but it's known for its really good dividends. And so when a company comes around and says, sorry, we're not actually going to pay a dividend, you have to stand back and go, what's going on here? It, particularly if you think that during COVID, it kept paying dividends. So the, the, the problem we've got is you know, very cold, icy weather at the end of 2022. So we've had more accidents on the road. We've had lots of burst pipes. And of course, that leads to an increase in claims on people's insurance policies. In the summer, it was too hot. It can, so we had lots of claims for subsidence there. Um, and so what poor old Direct Line is saying that you know it's, it's looking at how much money it's got uh, and, and does it feel comfortable with that, um, you know, its capital requirements. And so it's saying it's getting slightly towards the lower end of where it's really comfortable. Um, so it's got to think about ways to... You know, improve its balance sheet. Now, if you go back to August, when it published its last set of results, there were some hints there that it was worried because it scrapped um, £50 million of a planned um, share buyback. So now it's scrapping the dividend. So I think it's understandable that investors are absolutely shocked and that poor old share price has gone plummeting as we're recording this podcast. <laughs> yeah, because claims, I think, have almost doubled 
um, just from the last time it was estimating how much it was going to have to pay out. And when you just look at the weather outside my window right now and you think about how saturated the ground is, I know there's flooding in, in the United States at the moment, but it really doesn't feel like it's going to be too long before we have the same kind of thing here in the UK. Well, it was my understanding that insurers were meant to be amazing at predicting what was going to happen. You know, isn't that what their <laughs> skills are? So Crystal ball did, time, not, yeah. did they not know that weather patterns are getting a bit more unpredictable? And, you know, surely the, the, the big story of the last few years is you know, all about climate change. And we were told we were going to get, you know, much hotter summers, much colder or extreme or, or even milder sort of winters. And so you would have thought that it would have sort of be a bit more conservative in its sort of planning and thinking, that, you know, what if these situations happen? So um, you know, some some people might argue, okay, this is it's, a, it's been a one-off, isn't it? Really sort of uh, icy conditions, uh, very hot summer. But, but you have to question, is it a one-off? Because if it's not, then direct lines going to have to, you know, obviously rethink all its sort of plans and, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if it comes back to the market and asks, you know, cap in hand to shareholders and say, I think we need to do like a big fundraise. We need to sort of shore up this balance sheet. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's gone from being the sort of one of the most boring companies on the stock market to, you know, th- there's so much to talk about. <laughs> and inflation as well has played a pl- part because I know that the cost of these repairs have gone up as the cost of parts and labour have gone up. No, actually, that's 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 a really good point. So it's you know, if you look back for last year, you know, people like Admiral and and Direct Line have been talking about this claims inflation. Um, you know, again, it's just it's just eating into their sort of profit margins. So uh, it costs more to get a, a car fixed. More cars need fixing or replacing. You know, this this is like an absolutely perfect storm for the business, um, and you know, a bit of a shocking time for anyone who's got money invested in their shares. So while we're on updates for big companies. We, we've started to see the supermarkets report. And so, um, you know, so far, it seems to suggest that shoppers have been hunting out for value. And there's one company on the stock market that, uh, well, sort of used to be on the stock market, has actually turned out to be one of the big losers, isn't it, Danny? Yes. Yeah, so we've had an update um, from Moody's, the credit rating agency, talking about Morrison's, which, of course, used to be on the FTSE 100. Um Disappeared was bought by private investors last year and it's got a huge amount of debt attached to it. We know the debt piles over six billion pounds worth. And of course, with interest rates going up, the cost of servicing all that debt has also gone up. So what Moody's have said is that it is the supermarket which has raised prices for customers more than any other major supermarket over the last year. And what do higher prices mean? Well, if you go to a supermarket and you're faced with higher prices, what's probably your first port of call? Uh, well, yeah, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a Tesco loyal through and through, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so you'd be heading out the door. I think that's what lots of people have done. They've been seeking out value wherever they could find them. And we know that uh, Morrison's lost its place as one of the big four supermarkets. It was overtaken by Aldi this year. And Moody said that it feels that it wouldn't be that much of a stretch to also see it overtaken by Lidl. Now, 
Christmas is a huge time for supermarkets and we have had updates from both Aldi and Lidl talking about you know record sales figures as more and more shoppers have been heading through the doors to find value and one supermarket which has really got into the fight this time in a way that I don't think it ever has before is Sainsbury's and we're recording this on Wednesday lunchtime. At the moment, we don't have an update from Tesco or Marks and Spencers, but we have this morning had an update from Sainsbury. And considering we've been talking about this cost of living crunch and the fact that maybe shoppers would have been really cutting back this Christmas, Sainsbury's has done okay. Now, I say okay because investors haven't been that um, impressed with their figures. They say that they've had record Christmas sales up 7.1% over Christmas. But when you think about it, where inflation is at the moment, you would have expected those sales to be up even more because it, it seems like higher prices are responsible for the increase in sales rather than people buying more stuff. Now, that said, what Sainsbury's has said is that more and more people have been going back into store. Its value lines have been performing incredibly well. It's done a really big advertising campaign to tell its shoppers that it is price matching a huge number of products with the likes of Aldi and Lidl. But what is interesting with Sainsbury's, of course, is those little boxes tucked in the corner. And I know you were talking about Argos a bit earlier, Dan, because I know that lots of people this Christmas have been thinking about gifts. And when they've been thinking about gifts, they might well have been thinking about energy saving gifts. So things like air fryers and, you know, heated blankets and that kind of stuff. But with discretionary spend expected to dwindle even more over the next year, and lots of retailers are warning about this, this could be one place that they could be really vulnerable. Argos seems to have sort of been shoved to the corner of a Sainsbury's store these days. I don't know what, about you, Danny, but where I live, they've, they've shut all the Argos um, standalone stores down. And I actually went at the weekend to Sainsbury's, and I, I noticed it, it's, it's like the poor little child in the corner. Uh, no one there. And <laughs> But, you know, I think yeah, Sainsbury's has got this sort of food first strategy. And you know, and I think that if you've got um, management openly declaring that really what they care about is food sales and not, um, you know, general merchandise, um, you've got the poor old staff stuck in the, you know, stuck there feeling a bit unloved probably. And then, you know, obviously cash strapped consumer, are they going to be, you know, how, how much can they afford? But, it, you know, it, I guess it's a bigger debate about what people are spending money on, really. So it's it's certain things that are, are not cheap are still being bought. And I, I think there's going to be a real battle over the next year, not just for merchandise, but also for food. In fact, we had some figures out earlier this week from Nielsen saying that it expected food sales would slow considerably over the next year. And we've seen those discounters really get back into the fight. Um, they sort of lost some ground during COVID as, as price wasn't the main thing which people were focused on. But, you know, they were thinking about deliveries rather than um, about price. Now price is the key battleground. And I think the expectation is that it is going to get more difficult. I think one question that investors do have is whether or not 
Marks and Spencer and Waitrose will have lost share to Sainsbury's. Will shoppers have been trading down? And uh, when we get an update from Marks and Spencer's, we'll see just exactly how they've been impacted by all of this. But the one thing that people anecdotally are saying is that they pushed the boat out with food and drink this Christmas. You had the World Cup when people were celebrating. You had the fact that, you know, for the first Christmas in a couple of years, people could really spend time with family and friends. If they were thinking about cutting costs, they were probably going to do more at home than heading out and about, particularly, of course, with the train strikes, which are uh, expected to have cost hospitality quite dearly. And people did start shopping earlier. So in some cases, you've got to think maybe they were putting their extra cash into food and drink rather than other goods. But having said that, of course, some retailers on the high street have done really well. Um, We have seen so many big names disappear from the high street over the last couple of years. And those remaining do seem to be punching above their weight. So we got an update from Bellwether next last week after you guys recorded and today wednesday uk retail stocks are flying again after a tremendous performance from jd sports down yeah i mean if you look at jd sports last year i think the the market uh, like many retailers was worried that people were not going to be able to buy as much as they used to so the the idea that jd sells sort of the latest cool trainers and sort of athleisure sort of um, track suits and the likes um but we, we got a sort of sense that this the worries were overdone when Nike um, issued some figures just before Christmas to say that it had seen a sort of real pickup in trade in recent months. And you know, good old JD Sports has come out with the same thing, saying actually they're doing quite well. Um, you know, it even enjoyed its highest ever weekly sales in the run up to Christmas. Um, and also benefiting the company greatly is much better availability of products and easing of um, shipping costs. So, you know, supply chain problems seem to be sorting themselves out. So, um, you know, those were headwinds last year. Now we've got a really, really positive start to the year. Um, and I just think that, you know, this goes to show that there are products that people are prepared to pay, even though times are tough. Um and I wonder if it's because they've got a, um, a younger audience, a younger target market. Are these people perhaps still living, you know, lots of them still living with their parents? They, they might have a, a lowly paid job, but that's that's where they want to spend their money. So um, I think it's quite interesting. But obviously, just remember that JD Sports is much more than just a UK story. It's, it's, it's in multiple countries. So um, when someone's trying to get a, a sense of you know, how healthy is the UK high street, JD Swartz, you know, you need to look at the bigger picture with that stock. But yeah, but it's, it's great. And it's great to see this company doing well. Great to see Next coming out with really positive stuff. Um, and I think that you know, we need this bit of good news because unfortunately there's a backdrop of um, some companies actually coming out with, you know, still with sort of gloomier stuff because we are actually seeing companies doing lots of cost cutting. And that includes, um, you know, one very large e-commerce player. Yeah, Amazon, um, it announced a massive tranche of cost cutting, Um, 18,000 jobs. It said that it was going to cut globally. We got the detail of that through last week. You know, I mean, its share price has absolutely tanked in the last year. I was having a look uh, just before we recorded this, still down 45.7% in the last 12 months. And I think investors 
are really concerned about how far and how fast it expanded in the wake of the pandemic. You know, e-commerce was the place to be and online sales around the world absolutely exploded. And what we've seen really over the course of the last year is sort of been a levelling of the playing field. We've found sort of high street sales returning to fight again people have wanted to get out they've wanted to go out and touch and taste and share experiences with family and friends and they've sort of found a level and Amazon is having to make sure that it is fighting fit to take it forward through a recession and into the next lot of opportunities and it has said that it intends to shut three UK warehouses, uh, Hemel Hempstead, Doncaster and Gourock in the west of Scotland. Now, these are older warehouses and it's quite interesting because although 1,200 jobs are expected to be impacted, the company has said that it will try and offer um, different roles at other sites to those employees And it also says that it is still intending to open two new major fulfillment centres. And that is expected to create 2,500 jobs. So at a time when they're talking about job cuts, they are talking about closures in the UK. But we haven't had the details of where any potential job cuts could come. Because at the moment, it looks like, you know, in terms of the net number in three years time, they'll actually be more people employed by Amazon. Now, you know, in terms of of retail, in terms of tech, you know, it's had a really, really rough ride over the last year. And, And what I've noticed over the last couple of days is investors really looking again at some retail stocks, considering about what exactly is going to happen over the course of the year, wondering whether or not those stocks have sort of hit rock bottom yet and whether or not it's it's now sort of time for them to climb. But I, I think it's important to note that, you know, when we're talking about bad news on the jobs front, we're not just talking about, you know, the, the kind of blue collar jobs, because we've also had um, an update from investment bank Goldman Sachs and reports that it is about to embark on its biggest cost-cutting exercise since the financial crisis. Yeah, I mean, there's there's only sort of um, sort of rumours at the t- time of this recording, but it would suggest that we could see sort of several thousand job cuts from Goldman Sachs. Currently, employs forty nine thousand people around the world. The key problem here is that because of the sort of the gloomy economic outlook. There's fewer deals being made. You know, yes, there are sort of. Um, we hear big stories about sort of M and A mergers and acquisitions going on, but really, the type of deals that keep the money flowing into its investment banking division uh, are finding a lot harder to come by. And of course, companies have to react to these situations. So here, you, you know, the report suggests there's going to be sort of um, cutbacks in its private wealth um, management unit, uh, cutbacks in its research department. Um, and you know this sort of follows a, a broader review of corporate travel and expenses. So um, I think you'll probably see this from quite a lot of the uh, the banks um, in, in in good times. That they always talk about the great fees that they make on investment banking. But in in, in badder times, as more difficult periods that we're facing now, it's only natural to see these job cuts. And it's quite you know obviously it's unpleasant to hear about all these job cuts on on the news every day. Um, you know. So, 
And sadly, I think that there's going to be a bit of a hangover that lots of companies perhaps hired too many people after the pandemic. They thought that you know, trends that they'd seen, um, particularly you know, any companies tapped into sort of the digital world, perhaps they overhired and now they need to make sort of these adjustments. So it, it's a bit it's a bit unsettling, but um, unfortunately, I think we're going to have to get used to it. And as you say, I mean, I was taking a look and Goldman Sachs since 2019 have upped the headcount by 10,000. You know, they've been boosting salaries. They've been offering um, big bonuses in order to hire the best talent because it's been a really tight labour market. And that's been the same thing that we've seen from, you know, big technology companies. There was a trend where even if you perhaps didn't need a certain skill set right then, you would hire the person because you thought, well, I'm not going to be able to get their skill set in the future at that price if I don't hire them now. And of course, companies just finding right now that that is something that they they can't do any longer and they're having to right size for the uh, use of a, another term. Now, I guess we've brought you the good the bad now unfortunately is the downright ugly so we've known for a while that the housing market was in something of a downward spiral but barrett development's latest earnings update doesn't sugarcoat the scale of the situation does it Danny? no it doesn't and i'm going to give you one figure which really does put this in context 1.2 billion pounds that is the figure they've placed on the drop in forward orders. They're saying it now stands at 2.5 billion, which is, you know, pretty decent. But when you compare it with a year ago, it was 3.8 billion. And reservations, the number of people putting their money down on houses, that has fallen significantly. New Year 2022, they said just over 10,000, whereas the same period a year ago, it was almost 15,000. Now, I think investors have been pricing a downturn in the housing market in really for the last 12 months because we've seen house builder shares down and, you know, just looking at Barrett over a year, still 40% down. But in the wake of that mini budget and the tumult that ensued, the issues with people being able to get hold of fixed rate mortgages, and even if they could get hold of fixed rate mortgages, then the amount that they were having to pay for them had absolutely skyrocketed. I think it was 6.65% in September when, you know, people, a lot of people had bought at around 2%. So this was placing a huge extra cost on their household budgets. And I think as we head into recession anyway, we normally start to see a slowdown in housing markets. But what happened in September sort of put everything on fast forward, you know, stuck everything in a blender and whizzed it all up. And now we're having to deal with that because even though the budget which followed sort of settled uh, markets down and we saw bond prices steady as well, it has made people incredibly nervous. So what Barrett is saying is that there's a marked slowdown in the UK housing market, that confidence is way down, that people are just feeling uncertain about whether or not they should buy a house right now. They don't know what's going to go on with Bank of England interest rates. They don't know what's going to go on with, you know, the rate that they'll have to pay for their mortgage. They don't know what's going to go on with house prices. Will they buy at the top end of the market and then find that the price comes down? I was talking to um, 
a friend just the other day and her son is looking to buy and even he a 22 year old lad who's just come in for some money so you know it's not exactly across everything economically even he was saying mum I don't think it's the right time to buy a house so when you think of it that way it's clear that everybody is nervous about what is going to happen with the housing market. Yeah, I think that's right I mean you know, if, if you if you've feel that the, the the direction of travel is for property prices to fall a little bit further why rush and try and um you know, you know try and get your your dream home at the moment you know you could potentially wait a few months and get it even cheaper but you know when when we hear about job cuts in the, across lots of different companies in the news um we hear about interest rates potentially staying high for a while you know it's understandable people are going to be nervous about their personal finances and you know, they're going to make that decision to say I want to move house, but actually it just doesn't feel the right time, does it? No, um, but of course people still have money that they want to invest and they're still incredibly interested in, in figuring out the best places to invest that money. And one guy who's got a huge amount of sway with investors is Terry Smith. And every year he updates us on how his fund has performed and what changes he's planning to make. And it's fair to say even he found 2022 tough going down. That's right. I mean, we, we talked about this on last week's podcast that he had a pretty miserable year. But since then, he's now issued his sort of shareholder letter. And I think whether you invest in Fundsmith Equity Fund or not, it's well worth signing up and getting on the mailing list via its website to read this letter because it does give you a really fascinating insight into how um, you know a well-known investor sort of is navigating the markets and, and what he sees. And for me, there's two key takeaway points. One is that he feels that you know, Fundsmith as a long-term investor has been completely ignored by several big companies um, when it sort of tried to get in touch to say, you know, we're not sure uh, you're doing the right thing and strategy. You know, we've got some suggestions for how to to make some improvements because you know w- when you have a, a fund that in, owns quite a big chunk of a company, you would assume that they would have some sort of um, foot in the door to you know ha- have a conversation. But you know, the, you know, Terry Smith sort of said that um, PayPal and Unilever were not really receptive to anything. But along Waltz's, uh, you know, a couple of activist investors, or certainly in the case of Unilever, an activist investor in the form of Tryon, um, Terry Smith is saying that they they weren't on the shareholder register very long, and they just waltzed in, and then they managed to get some big changes. So he he sort of raising this sort of point of um, actually, it would be better if the company did listen to its shareholders. And I'm sure that people listening to this podcast now are saying, well, hang on a minute. I'm a shareholder, um, or you know, in various companies, I'm only you know deemed to be a retail investor, and, I, and no one listens to me. But you know, you know <laughs> and actually, for for years, no one listens to the retail investor. So you know, if you think poor old Terry Smith, you're having a tough time. <laughs> you know, as a retail investor, no one listens to us. But I think it's, I think that you know, in general, companies really should um, spend a bit more time to think about the people who actually own their shares or, or you know, invest in their money. What you know, get their thoughts on it. So. The other thing with um, Terry Smith is saying is that there's actually a silver lining to a gloomy economic outlook. He thinks that quite a few companies in his portfolio might scale back on spending. And hopefully, in his sort of opinion, it will be in areas that are non-core to his business. And For example, there's Meta, which owns Facebook. Lots of people sort of question, what on earth is that doing in the funds for his portfolio? 
Um, Fundsmith likes quality companies that it can own forever. And here's a, here's a business whose um, founder is sort of chasing this dream of the metaverse, which is completely <laughs> unproven, um, gobbling up loads, billions of pounds, you know, billions of dollars of money in development. And he's sort of, and, you know, Terry Smith is sort of saying, hang on a minute, we bought this because it's a really, you know, a strong advertising, digital advertising business, but now it's sort of mucking about with the metaverse. And so he's sort of pointing to other people like Amazon and Alphabet saying, well, perhaps you know, harder times should make some harder decisions to come by in the, in the boardroom. You know, perhaps this is quite good that those little dream projects that they've had, um, you know, might be pushed aside, and that, and that could be better for the company, and obviously better for investors in in the long term. Um, yeah, food for thought, really, isn't it? It is food for thought, and it and it's all about interpretation as well, because um, I, I know that he's coming for quite a bit of criticism over what he's had to say about Unilever. Last year, he was complaining about the wokeness, the virtue signaling when it came to Hellman's mayonnaise. You know, if you don't know what mayonnaise is, why are you buying it? And this year, he's taken aim at another Unilever product, which is Lux, um, talking about, you know, how it's being marketed to women to make them feel better, stronger, more empowered. But actually, when you look at another Unilever product, which is Dove Soap, that campaign has been massively successful. And when people think of Dove now and they think about female empowerment and women in all the different shapes and forms, then Dove is the brand that they go with. So sometimes it could be that perhaps Terry Smith might be slightly behind the times that said, I'm not sure I'd, I'd, I'd bet against him when it comes to investments. Um, we've been talking an awful lot about retail and property. And if you're interested to know what's happening with UK commercial property outside of London, well, custodian property income REIT is a good proxy for activity. It invests in a range of real estate assets spanning office blocks and distribution centres for the likes of Warburton's Bakery and retailer Superdrug and also retail parks and drive through sites for Starbucks. Dan recently caught up with manager Richard Shepard-Cross to better understand what's going on in the market now. Let's hear what he had to say. So, Richard, what's actually happening at the moment with commercial property valuations? Are they in decline everywhere, or is it just in certain areas? Uh, of course, the, the, whole, the whole market is affected, um, but the greatest movement has been in bizarrely the most popular sectors of the last cycle. So logistics, um, it probably stands out as having moved the most with valuations moving up to 30% in Q4 alone. Uh, and that's just a simple uh, yield movement from three and a half to 5%. There's been less impact, uh, certainly that we've noticed in our smaller lot strategy where pricing for industrial uh, in the market seems to be closer to 20%. And um, perhaps uh, the, as a, a surprise to many, we've seen the least movement in our high street retail portfolio and car, show, car showroom assets. And I suppose from our perspective, that underscores one of the benefits of having a diversified portfolio. So is, is the decline in valuations being driven in part by the rising cost of debt? Is that sort of uh, leading to a reduction in demand. People can't perhaps get the right deals they ca they need to be able to sort of invest in these properties. Uh, yeah, the, the rising cost of debt's undeniably having an impact. Indeed, it, it is it's front and centre of uh, of what has 
has caused the re-rating. I think there's an expectation that commercial property yields will show a risk premium over gilts, the risk-free rate, but don't overlook rental growth. Uh, and as a result of forecast rental growth, I think that we should expect that the spread over gilts might be narrower than we have experienced when gilts were at some rock bottom yields. Certain sectors could be oversold if uh, growth isn't forecast or factored in. And there is a very strong case, uh, despite fears of recession, for rental growth in smaller lot size industrial and logistics in regional offices, but only those buildings in regional offices where tenants are offered a high level of service, amenity, flexibility of lease term. Um, and also, I think there's, there's room for rental growth in some retail locations where rents have fallen too far. I know that you've managed to sell some assets for actually quite large premiums to book value. Do you think you just got lucky there or did you do something to these assets to actually make them a bit more valuable? Uh, somebody much cleverer than me said that luck is when preparation meets opportunity. And in our case, the preparation is in careful stock selection and the opportunity has come from both investors, owner occupiers and special purchasers. When we buy properties, we plan to hold them for the very long term and we manage them accordingly. Um, perhaps one of the advantages of a smaller property strategy is that there is a very active owner-occupier market for smaller assets. And this has delivered a number of special purchaser opportunities and we've capitalized on those. Um, but you know, we manage the properties as though we're going to hold them forever. Uh, and uh, if the opportunity comes along, we will we will uh, grasp it. So I know you've got quite a bit of industrial property in your portfolio. There was a lot of hype in recent years about these sort of big box warehouses, and it sort of perhaps led to valuations becoming really stretched. Do you, do you, and of course, it seems to be the bubble is bursting there. What what, what trends are we seeing with these much more smaller units? Uh, well, I suppose we, we are um, in a market, so we're not. We can't be insulated from uh, the impact on other subsectors, uh, particularly when that prime end of the market, as I've touched on, has moved thirty percent. Um, but actually, what we've seen not only has it fallen thirty percent, but it had risen twenty percent in advance of that in as little as eighteen months. And perhaps what's surprising is that that pricing volatility has been a feature of very prime assets, when normally you would expect volatility to be a feature of secondary property. So that seems a little perverse. So we've seen a lower level of volatility. Um, I think the bubble was caused by the expectation that interest rates would stay low forever. Um, and indeed, that's what the forecasters were telling us. And it's the same forecasters who are telling us they're going to be uh, rising still further. So question, you know, who do we trust? Um, I've mentioned uh, about the uh, spread of um, uh, yields over the risk-free rate in um, for, for commercial real estate. And for us, pursuing that smaller lot strategy, we know that we get an additional margin of 75 
to 150 basis points for pursuing that smaller lot strategy, which gives us that greater spread over the risk-free rate. And therefore, I think we'll, um, we'll come back into vogue. Um, and of course, we also have diversification across all sectors. This isn't for us just about big box warehouses, which is perhaps where the um, worst of the bubble was. Even within our industrial portfolio, uh, we have spread between distribution, manufacturing, storage, e-commerce, and spread across multiple locations and multiple tenancies. And that spread of risk has really helped reduce the impact of, of this bubble. So it, I presume that there's still strong demand for um, warehousing. You know, the e-commerce the, the e trend might be sort of easing back a bit after um, being incredibly popular during the pandemic, but it's, you know, e-commerce is still got you know, a long-term growth driver here isn't it as it... this is this is not just about e-commerce i mean you're right that the, there is still further growth there um but this is very basic supply and demand and that development that we have seen over the last uh few years in industrial and logistics has been very heavily skewed towards large format logistics units so there's been almost no development for small or mid-box, to extend that vernacular, um, across the UK. Yet demand is there because buildings are um, getting older. Um, tenants need to expand. Tenants are demanding newer buildings uh, with um, modern environmental standards, and they simply haven't been built. So that there remains an absolute dearth of supply. Uh, and even with turnover levels of demand, that's going to lead to rental growth. Um, just to just to look at our portfolio, our industrial portfolio, which is all sub hundred thousand square foot industrial and logistics buildings, average rents are around about six pounds twenty a square foot. Estimated rental values are are about seven pounds a square foot. So there is latent growth to come through the portfolio. But even at seven pounds a square foot, we're not going to see any new development. Um, you know, rents need to be. 815 getting on towards 10 pounds a square foot if we're going to see new development increasing supply and if you don't increase in supply then the demand supply imbalance remains and there's pressure on rental growth so whichever way you cut it we expect to see continued rental growth um particularly in that uh, smaller format um industrial and logistics sector i mean i know in the current environment lots of companies would sort of try and push back and argue that you know Perhaps this isn't the time for us to be um, having to pay higher rents. Is there any chance that we can just sort of stay on current levels? Or I'm just wondering how much sort of power you have in terms of, is it written into the contract that rents have to go up every year? Or? No, it's not written into the contract, but rents are typically reviewed five yearly. Um, five years ago, um, many um, occupiers didn't see an increase in rent. So some of these rents were set 10 years ago. And I think a lot of... Um, it's certainly our experience that our tenants have been very accepting of rental growth because they're not blind. They can look out there in the market, see the lack of supply and realize they have little alternative um, if they want to remain in good quality space or indeed in any space at all. Um, so people are prepared to pay higher rents. And in real terms, if your rent was set 10 years ago, um, then your occupational cost is perhaps the only cost of running your business that hasn't increased. Uh, so I think people are um, accepting. And also, 
as um, they use their space more efficiently, they can actually drive greater profits out of the same buildings. Um, and uh, and that also makes it affordable. So I know quite a, you, you've got sort of quite big exposure to the retail sector. So um, you've got names like B&M, B&Q, Sainsbury's as, as some of your tenants. But I, I was wondering, you know, if, if we do see a sort of severe recession in the UK, w- would that have sort of knock on and impact? I mean, there's a risk that some of these retailers might actually want to sort of reduce the size of their um you know, their, their property estate or, or what they need to have to, to function as a business? I think re- recession is always a concern. But don't forget, we invest in real estate, not in the underlying businesses of our tenants. So even if we are to suffer some tenant default, and I stress this is not a particular concern, particularly from the likes of the uh, the tenant names that, that you just called out, we still have the real estate. And we would expect that all our properties in the portfolio would be suitable to attract a new tenant to support long-term cash flow and underpin value. So um, tenant default is uh, a bump in the road, but we always have the real estate and um, we are uh, well-financed, strong balance sheet. uh, And uh, we feel that all all properties can be repurposed or indeed simply re-let should tenants uh, go into default. Just just finally, I wanted to ask you about um, sort of trends that you've seen with people returning to work in offices, because you've got within your portfolio some offices. Are, are you sort of worried that you might have tenants now who, who are drawing up plans and thinking, OK, we really do need to downsize. We just don't need this space anymore. Um, and then if you, if you get a new tenant, they're, they're just going to argue, well, you know, the market's demand is weaker than markets. So therefore, you've got to give us a much better deal than the previous person was on. Do you know, I think perhaps the opposite might be true. I think perhaps we are going to be able to charge higher rents, but only if we accept that as landlords, we're going to have to provide a much higher level of service to tenants than was envisaged in the days of the 25-year lease, full repairing, insuring um, uh, arrangements. Tenants now, you know, post-pandemic, want greater flexibility. They want a higher level of amenity. They will want business lounges, coffee bars, fully fitted um, offices, flexible lease terms, environmentally responsible buildings. And our experience is that if we provide that, then tenants are prepared to pay for it. So where landlords embrace these sort of post-pandemic working practices, uh, and I think that is going to be for city centre buildings with high amenity around good transport links, but also with high amenity in the building, then we expect there to be strong occupier demand. But there will be buildings that get left behind without that necessary investment. So we potentially have a two-tier market. And it's our job to make sure that our buildings uh, fulfil the brief and that we as landlords are prepared to put the work in to make those buildings attractive uh, in a sort of post-pandemic working environment. Well, Richard Shepard-Gross from Custodian Property Income Reek, thank you ever so much for joining us on the podcast. Thanks very much. Dan talking to Richard Shepard-Gross from Custodian Property Income Reek. So businesses big and small have been waiting with bated breath to find out what help they'll get towards their energy bills after the 1st of April. That help is going to be scaled back considerably. 
Yes. So um, there's been a lot of talk about this because, of course, from April the 1st, the scheme runs out and businesses had been getting a cap to the cost that they could be charged by energy providers. But of course, you know, that is costing huge amounts of money for the UK taxpayer. So the government has said that it is going to change the scheme because the current level of help is just too expensive. So rather than there being a cap, um, businesses will get a discount on wholesale prices. And the amount of support they get depends on the kind of business that they are. So bills will be automatically discounted by up to £6.97 sorry, per megawatt hour for gas bills and up to £19.61 per megawatt hour for electricity bills. That's according to a statement from the government. So in the House of Commons the other day, um, uh, the government was explaining that it roughly works out as about £2,300 savings for a typical pub and bigger manufacturers who, you know, if you're talking about energy intensive manufacturers, steelworks, glass blowers, that kind of thing, then they're going to receive bigger discount. And the government estimated that that would be the equivalent of about £700,000 of support for a business over 12 months. But when you're thinking about how businesses are already being charged in double what they had been paying this time last year, and you think about all the other costs that they are having to deal with at a time when if they're sort of consumer facing business, then people are spending less then they're saying that they're incredibly worried about what comes next. And some businesses have been waiting to find out the detail of this before they make crucial decisions about what they do next year. And we've already seen lots of pubs talking about cutting the amount of hours that they open because they just can't make it work. If, if the pub's not completely full, then they just cannot make those numbers add up. So I think it's going to be a, a pretty tough time. And another thing which... Um, certainly the British Retail Consortium was warning, is that potentially if bills rise by too much with that support dwindling, then some retailers might well have to start passing costs on to consumers. And if you start seeing costs rising, what does that do to inflation numbers, which we are hoping to see come down over the course of the next year? Well, that just, you know, fuels that inflationary fire. So, um, I think the fact that there is some support has been welcomed, but there's lots of warnings about what might happen um, in, in the sort of next few months, particularly if prices stay elevated. We've seen them come down, but if it's another cold snap in Europe and prices rise again, then it, it could get pretty tricky. I'm not going to let you end the podcast on such a gloomy note. I think it's really important that we that, that we depart with at least some something to put a smile on our face. I, I reckon it's got to be the news that the oil price has fallen enough to help bring down the price of the pump. So we've got an update from the AA who says that petrol prices have, have dropped below £1.50 a litre for the first time since Russia invaded Ukraine. So 
I think that's that's surely got to be good news for people and um, definitely a good way to to end this episode of the Money Markets podcast. <laughs> I like ending on good news. We should definitely make that a thing that we do every week. Uh, next week, we're going to update you. Unfortunately, this might not be such good news. Uh, the latest UK jobs and inflation data. Plus, I'm going to be talking to an expert on China about reopening opportunities for your portfolio. No. We'd love it if you get in touch with any comments or suggestions or, or requests for people you'd like us to interview on the podcast. You can email us at podcast at ajbell.co.uk. Uh, make sure you subscribe and leave a message wherever you're listening to this podcast because we'd love to see the reviews as well. So thank you very much for listening. and We'll catch you next time. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Thank you.